0: Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussions, news, and interviews, presenting The Film Scene with Ileana Douglas. Ileana is an actress, writer, author, and film historian with a need to discuss movies that borders on obsession. You'll learn the history of movies one great story at a time. The Film Scene is the deep cuts of movie podcasts, featuring movies we love by the people who made them. And now, Ileana Douglas.
1: Why, hello, everyone. It's Ileana Douglas. Welcome to the film scene. The, I'm here uh, with Jeff Graham.
0: Jeff Graham, it's the Contagion film scene, right? Yes,
1: <laughs> where I got my gloves, where everything is w- wiped down.
0: For you podcast listeners, I do have to say, we're, we always talk about Ileana's style. It's un- unparalleled compared to the rest of this business. And uh, you. you're looking very uh, Park City, Utah today, very <laughs> Sundance. We have a very chic beanie. I got this hat in Sundance. Did you see? I just knew it. Yes, I did. A scarf. It's funny, it's raining in LA. Vest. Yeah. All, all TV productions are on halt. My wife, who works at Jimmy Kimmel, will no longer be working with the studio audience.
1: Yes. It I, is an interesting time to be alive. Uh, got the call yesterday. TCM Film Festival is canceled. Yeah. So that was a blow and, you know, very sad. Just always look forward to that every year. Um and what well, Chris was devastating to me, also the close of the Broadway shows. That feels a little ominous. It feels very ominous, you know, it really does. Because uh, you know New York is if there's no Carnegie Hall and no Broadway and you know what do we, what do we do? And, and as entertainers, what what do we do with this information to make to try to make people feel better?
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just the crazy one to me is um, South by. You know, you think of yes. South by Southwest just canceled, and uh, man, the music's going for a long time today. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, you know, we, we love the song, but we got to, you know, we got to start the show. Um, South by it's crazy to me because. Um, you know, you think about all these filmmakers who this is kind of their shot. You know, you think yeah, of someone the film like
1: is opening.
0: Alina Dunham, who her f- film Tiny Furniture in 2012 premiered at South right. by Judd Apatow was there. And then she got greenlit to create Girls for HBO. Mm-hmm. You wonder how many like Lena Dunham's are there this year ready to premiere their film who kind of won't get that shot.
1: Well, yeah, you look back in history at films that opened before 9-11, um, films that opened uh, right around Pearl Harbor you know and and you you that just disappeared and uh, kind of came back i think i believe it's a wonderful life was delayed wow for a year release again because they had made it and they and when it came out it was it didn't do well, you know what the timing of it, and then things grow in um in uh popularity one of the things we were talking about is one of the fans suggested tcm about doing a you know maybe there was a way to connect online and Mm -hmm. share stories so i was thinking it might be fun next week and we're gonna this is all sort of coming together right now we'll let everybody know uh a time if somebody if they want to call in and we can talk about some of my memories Mm. of the of the TCM Film Fest, and they can share, share their experiences. I guess we're just going to have to figure out a way to do everything uh, online. It's going to be a different theatrical experience.
0: It will, but so for our listeners, uh, if you're not already following Ileana on Twitter, make sure you follow her at Ileana Rama. Yes. One of my favorite handles online. Thank you. And we are going to tweet how we're going to cover this next week. So um, a lot of you guys already do follow her, but if not, if you're a listener, hop on Ileana's Twitter, and uh, we're hoping to do call-ins next week. Yeah, that would be really great. The other
1: thing I wanted to suggest, because I have so much power, is that I'm imagining that you know if you can't go out subscriptions to all the cable companies are just going to go through the roof and i think it would be an incredibly nice gesture if some of these companies maybe took a 10% uh off of our bills mm-hmm. or offered you know a free uh couple six months couple months of netflix yeah. you know just to offer people some relief of feeling like we're all in this uh, together, I think you know?
0: so. And you also think from a business perspective, if someone's not a Netflix subscriber right now, but they hear that they get 10% off, now's the time to grab those those Corona customers.
1: <laughs> I think that this is the time where you're looking to people, you know, obviously, like Bill Gates is doing his financing, you know, putting together testing and things like that. And And the, I think this is one of these moments where you look in your community and you look for people. Uh, that have large corporations to, you know, to give people some sense uh, of hope, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, because it's just such a, it's such a trying time. I, I, you know, you get very, very down. I, I'm obviously very down. I mean, just the, 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 you know, the thought that, again, somebody like you know, the, with the news, it's just surreal that Tom Hanks and, and Rita Wilson, you know, have coronavirus. That's not; it just does not seem possible.
0: We were chatting with our producer Ryan up at the top, and we were all agreeing that you know Tom Hanks is kind of like he's like cinema's dad. You know, he's like our yeah. he's like our nice uncle in a cardigan. And for coronavirus, how did you phrase it, Ryan? For coronavirus to go after him? Oh, that was a power move. It's a power move on coronavirus's part because he is uh, he's our guy, Tom Hanks. It you know? just
1: seems, it's, it's on, you know, it seems surreal. It's and very he's strange. The, one of the most beloved, you know, people and, uh, he, it just, it's sobering, you know, if somebody mm-hmm. like that and his film is shut down and, and productions here are going to start to get shut down and what, it, what is the economic, Consequence. the economics of this over the next, uh, you know, a few months. We don't know. This we don't know. All, can, this when this you, you think back unknown. on
0: your career, Liana, can you think of any comparable? Do you feel like SARS was the same? Do you remember that affecting... No,
1: the only time, you know, was nine eleven. Yeah. That
0: was the only... Were you shooting six s- feet during that time or was that after... I'm not quite sure.
1: I know I was in LA and I know that things sort of shut down and I know people were coming together, you know, with big fundraisers Mm -hmm. and things like that for New York. You know, I recall that. I do recall the, you know, when we had the earthquake here in 94, that shut things down. Um, But those are the only, this to me is uncharted uh territory and I and people are really scared, you mm-hmm. know, and uh I still go you know I go to my dance class, it's down to about ten people now going to class I mean people are basically self isolating yeah. And so you're home, but it's a very lonely feeling. We have to figure out something so that we can all communicate online and not get mentally down because I think getting mentally down, it becomes a, you know, a mental contagion and you lower lower your immune system with fear.
0: I believe that. Absolutely.
1: I I mean, I know that that's true and especially I, I think, you know, most of us sort of feel that. We're, we don't have people out there that are you know heading up the you know spearheading this so i think it's a state we're into a state by state whoever's in charge in our state we're going to be
0: rallying it's been know. interesting i mean not only is this a huge cultural shift in terms of just global health but um, from an entertainment industry perspective harvey weinstein 23 year sentence
1: It's unbelievable as we celebrate, and we didn't even say at the top of the show. We're using this whole month to uh, Women's uh, History Month to have only women guests on and talking about female filmmakers. And uh, one of the things that I'm going to be asking Naomi is, you know, the kind of movies that were made post Me Too, and it's you know, I, I don't think that people could have conceived. I certainly cannot conceive of. This happening, you know, I recall, I'm recalling back when I did this television show, Action, Mm -hmm. and we fictionalized, you know, my character being bartered for sex to the fictional, to the Rothstein brothers. (laughs) And this was part of the storyline, and we filmed it, and it was a nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of funny thing that everybody did. And I think that women actresses were numb. Mm-hmm. And immune that this is the way this is the way it is, and things will never change and so to cut to all these years later, and not only is he sentenced but he's sentenced to twenty three years he's you know who will most likely probably die in prison, I think that it it changes uh forever you know it, it, me too for me for me the movement of me too is probably one of the most successful movements outside uh the vietnam war outside gay rights mm-hmm. i think it's one of the most successful it's swiftly changing movements radical movements that we have ever Scene. And uh, I believe that there's probably a segment of the population, male population, that is secretly thinking these women have gone too far. But for those people who think that, I think they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I think they're wrong. It's, it's like for some people that go, well, it's not so bad to have a few statues in the self. That kind of thinking is wrong thinking. And I think that for young
0: men like you, I'm just curious. I would almost sense it's kind of a relief. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I would like to think, and I don't want to be one of those like overly optimistic millennials, but I've, I feel like being indoctrinated into this new industry is so healthy for our generation, you know? It's like the idea of what we were hearing that just, that conduct in the workplace was just never something that would even cross our mind, you know? It does feel like a new landscape and climate and you know, your office is your office. It's a professional environment and However, you know, misogyny aside, that kind of conduct just seems unacceptable for a workplace. I feel like that's the precedent that I hope our generation is at least looking well, at.
1: Well, And what's interesting for my generation is that when I got into the film business, I was raised on movies that came out in the end of the 70s where it was all female leads. You know, mm-hmm. Sally Field, Sissy Spacek, Jill Klabert, uh Jane Fonda, you know— So many people that that you know were were fronting the headlining these you know these female driven movies, and when I got when I first started working in the industry, it was you know Allison Anders and Martha Coolidge, and there were I had worked with all these female, and it was in as we get in this is what's so interesting, and I don't know why it is, but as we get into 1996. 97 98 99 as we get into those years that's when everything kind of switched up and and we may look back on thinking that the those people that were in power the Weinstein's the Movezes, oh, yeah. they put their stamp and they changed entertainment and they they were the ones who got the women out put men in started doing like let's do storylines you know with more violence depicted against women mm-hmm. you can see it in the in the films of that era how the films from the early 90s seemed to change into the late 90s and the 2000s and then we get into you know i where i got involved which was um, around 2012 2013 when we started the trailblazing women show mm-hmm. by 2010 it's just that was the most toxic environment that I ever felt where I I couldn't believe that the industry that I'd started in the 90s, I I never saw female directors anymore, Wow, where the crew seemed to be predominantly male. And I think that from starting from about 2013, through, you know, through uh, Me Too and where we are now, I I just think we're an incredibly better place. But I hope that it's a cautionary tale that we never go back to where... We were where where women were just con- not considered a- of any value.
0: Well, the important thing is, of course, from like a humanity perspective, that's essential. But also, just from like an art perspective, it's so refreshing to have. I mean, when I look at some of my favorite projects over the last dec- the last decade, really. I mean, starting from twenty twelve twenty thirteen when you know women's voices were re-championed, most of my favorite stuff comes from female filmmakers. I just saw Kelly Reichardt's new movie, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's just. We want, we we don't want one storyteller. You know, we want a myriad of storytellers because I think Lena Waithe, who's a showrunner I really like, said, right now, even straight white dudes are bored of seeing straight white dudes on TV. You know, it's just more interesting if we can have multiple voices represented. So I think so.
1: Yeah, I I think so. Absolutely. The last thing I wanted to say, just as a personal citizen, is when um, I hope that the era of female lawyers fronting for really bad guys i hope that it goes out of style yeah. because there's nothing more distasteful than putting up a woman as and using one woman in weaponizing her against other women there's just something very unsettling about that and so when his when Weinstein's lawyer came out you know and said oh this is obscene and you know, uh, again, it's the idea of these women have gone too far. And, you know, the, he's an older man. What I always say to people and in my own case and in his case, he did this. Right. The women didn't do anything. He he got himself here mm-hmm. as any person who perpetrates a crime does you know, you have to live with the consequences of your decisions. You don't get mad at the victim, right? <laughs> you know, who who tur- who eventually says, after 20, 30 years of this, because this is a mindset that went back to the 1950s, where it was just kind of expected, I guess, a quid pro quo of men in power, and it just ended. And I think the only thing that was upsetting for them is that it ended so rapidly. I do understand that. It, it, if you've had candy for 50 years and all of a sudden you can't do it anymore, it's a very rapid, you know, kind of adjustment. But, uh, God, women don't represent bad guys,
0: yeah, not good. It's, not yeah, good. I hear what you're saying. All right, on that
1: note, let's bring in uh, Naomi McDougal Jones. Uh, she's written this fantastic book. Which I'm going to put up here. It's called the wrong kind of uh, woman. I've been spending all a uh, week reading it. She's got all sorts of um, statistics uh, about, um, you know, about where we are post uh, Me Too. She's also been an actress herself and a screenwriter and written a, a, a play. She had a film that premiered at Cinéquest. And uh, but this book, which is the wrong kind of woman inside a revolution to dismantle the gods of Hollywood, was published by Beacon Press in February. It's now available. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's welcome Naomi McDougall Jones. Hi, nice to hi, nice to see you.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: <laughs> I never thought I'd welcome a guest by saying we have wiped down all the. Uh, all the- <laughs> Oh, the headphones. I
2: appreciate that. Um, my first
1: question for you, because it's such a great title. What what is the wrong kind of woman?
2: Well, the joke is sort of that. That's what every woman gets told in Hollywood. Is like, if you could just be a little
1: right, you're not this, you're not you're, that, you're something
2: other than what you are. And what yeah. I I did over a hundred interviews of women and men up and down the industry for this book, and th- I kept hearing that phrase over and over again. from Women saying like, well, they just told me like, if I were a little thinner or a little younger or a little. Right. Less brown or like whatever. Yeah. That, that then they then you'd be the right kind of woman. And what I came to understand is that of course the problem is that we're women.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is that I think that with with women it's very it's like you you're like cattle, you know. So there's and and that's what we were talking a little bit about Me Too at the top. It was like, well, it's just one woman, right? And they don't realize, no, it's eighty, it's right. eighty. <laughs> But, well,
2: and really every actor—I mean, every yeah. actress—at least, and as well as women and other roles in the industry, I actually made it a project when I was doing these interviews to try to find an actress who didn't have some story of sexual harassment or abuse, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find one.
1: No, yeah, I don't. They—they <laughs> they say the statistics are one out of four, but I actually think it's you know one out of two. Way higher, than and that. I actually think again, e, you know, even as, as with all these sort of movements, even men now are, are a little, I've from my own personal experience are more vocal talking about their own experiences. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's (laughs) right. It's not just women who have been victimized Yeah,
1: where they've been, you know, again, mortified to even talk about it. I think that again, the openness of saying, of, of telling stories, I've been somewhat again, shocked by some of the stories that, you know, that, uh, that I've heard. Um, and one of the things you wrote, which I thought was fascinating, you said you writing the book was like being inside a washing machine because the narrative <laughs> kept changing, right. and I absolutely agree with you. It was. Did you start out to write one book and had had it shift, or how did that it happen? Didn't,
2: it didn't really shift, but um, so the, the way I got to write this book is that I gave this TED talk in mm. 2016 about what it's like to be a woman in Hollywood that's sort of the basis for this book. And then... A year after I gave it, the Weinstein story broke, and I got an email from TED.com saying, we're putting your talk on our homepage tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Get ready. Wow. That was the email. I was like, what does that mean? And then a million people watched that talk in the next three months. And so I received this publishing deal. So I began writing the book very much in the immediate aftermath of the whole Weinstein Me Too moment. And it was, it was like at first people were saying like, well, everything is different now, like this is fixed, they just didn't understand before, now they know this mm-hmm. is going to be better. And sort of as the, as the months went by, people, some people maintained that narrative, but what became clear is that actually not very much had changed.
1: In, in terms of creatively, or, or you mean in terms of the power dynamic?
2: Both. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it would be inaccurate, obviously, to say that nothing has changed, Mm -hmm. but I would say, based on the data, it's also inaccurate to say that anything has really substantively changed. I had plenty of stories of actresses that I interviewed who had been sexually harassed in public Mm -hmm. in professional situations by men in the immediate months after Weinstein, and nobody stepped in to help them even. Um, so I think that is not as solved as we'd like to think it is. And certainly behind the camera, the numbers have barely moved at all in terms of women directors, writers, producers. It feels like, I mean, I'm
1: in the Academy, and it feels like that there's more female-directed films, but again, it, it's not like they get the studio uh, push right. You know, behind them. Like I was watching Portrait of a Woman on Fire, it was on the Academy yeah. list and I voted for it yeah. and everything, but it was like nobody It wasn't getting any push no. until after the Oscars <laughs> right. were over and suddenly it it came out. But it was yeah. out, you know, before well, And, and that. there was
2: such a, as you say, there was such a great crop of films by female directors this year that yeah, could have incredible. been nominated um, and just were totally...
1: I'll yeah. Imagine. Well, again, it I think it still has to do with a, a patriarch of that there still are some barnacles of, like, that yeah. exist, that so much of, you know, the of, of some of these women, men that were in charge, you know, got fired or, you know, were released. But there's there's a little bit of the old guard left, oh, I think, definitely. that wants to keep it things the way. They were.
2: And and I think it's not even just the old guard. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you're hearing a lot of complaints now from younger white men who are saying like, oh, God, like I was I would have gotten that job, but they gave it to this woman of color because like, you know, yeah, <laughs> like they were afraid or whatever. And you're starting to hear a lot of that narrative, which I find very concerning, because, of course, that's not that's not real. It, what's real is that. They've had 95% of the pie, and now it yes. feels like they're being asked to have less, and it feels uh, very panicky. But that's but they're 30% of the U.S. population. So all we're saying is, like, hey, that means that 70% of us are the rest of the population, and our voices have been almost completely absent from right. the cultural narrative. Like, could we just have, like, our proportional a number of jobs and stories, please?
1: I See, I felt working in the industry that there has been a change because, as I was saying at the top of the show, when I started working in the early 90s and I, there was a, tons of female directors. And then as I got into the late 90s, mm-hmm. that's when it seemed to disappear. Yeah. And then I that's why I was saying by 2010, which seems to correlate with so many facts you have in your book by 2010, I the atmosphere on a film set was that women would be huddled together <laughs> with some kind of fear that something yeah. horrible was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. and that
2: does track perfectly with the history of, of what's been happening because yeah. there was that 1979 court case where six female directors got together with the DGA and sued the studios for hiring discrimination because... Between 1945 and 1979, less than one-half of 1% of films and television shows were directed by women. So they did sue, and there was this moment, very similar to the moment we've just been through, where the studios were like, ah, okay, like we'll hire this woman, please stop yelling at us, press release, press release. And so there was this moment where that number briefly spiked to 8%. In film and 16% in television, and there was sort of this feeling of, oh, okay, like they didn't know before, and now they know. Right. This will just—we're not at 50% yet, but we'll, this will keep getting better. Um, but of course, that peaked in the early 90s, and then the numbers began to backslide as everyone looked away, and then it's been basically at 4% mm-hmm. since then.
1: When I did the show Trailblazing Women. I, it was the same thing. I, you know, we were trying to track, we, we were do. we went back to the silent era mm-hmm. up until Catherine Bigelow finally won an Oscar. And again, you know, try, through doing the show, of course, you're trying to find all these reasons. Well, what is the reason why women were excluded? And what was the reason, you know, in the silent film area, they got rid of all the men. And I remember I was interviewing Jane Fonda and she just looked at me and she goes, we live in a patriarchy. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, but yeah, yeah. Well, that was yeah, but basically what is, but what is your what do you did you cuz I I can never really find a significant answer but what do you think is the root of why women seem to get to a certain point and then boom well, excluded. I mean,
2: I think the answer lies in the reason that they kicked women out in the silent film era, which was that initially the it wasn't really considered an industry film was just kind of a, an eccentric hobby. And anyway, right. the men were away fighting World War One and they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's fine. And they were making these radically feminist movies about, right. I mean, and not just feminist, but about cross-dressing and lesbianism and birth control and showing themselves naked on screen. And they, they were sparking riots in theaters. They were getting yeah. banned across the country. And so you can see in contemporaneous documents that that when Wall Street came in and was going to start investing, they said, you've got to get rid of the women right? because, A, they don't know how to run business, obviously, and, B, because uh, we're going to have a problem if women in society keep getting to watch these movies. They're going to start getting ideas in their head about what society should be like. And I don't think we're quite in that place anymore, but I think it stems from that same Mm -hmm. fear. And, I mean, what we're talking about is a group of people who have held all of this power for now nearly a century and all of this fame and all of this prestige and all of this money, and they don't actually want to give it up. (laughs) That really is as simple as that.
1: I I think so. There was another period uh, in the 1940s where, again, men were at war, women were working in the factories. And, again, it, it seems to to co- coincide with the amazing, with the female-driven picture of the 1940s, yeah. with all these incredible parts, yeah. and film noir movies, too, with great women leads. And then, again, as we get into the 60s, boom, you get right back to, you know, Valley of the Dolls, and and women become much more subservient again right. in the early 60s and mid 60s it's all Doris Day movies and
2: well and it is fascinating that sort of reverse trajectory um, i i cite uh, Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth in this book which is mm-hmm. of course an iconic book from the 90s and her, she has a theory that actually that women's roles on screen have actually gotten worse as women's power in society has gotten better. Sort of as a reactionary, like no, 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 <laughs> right, like, like no, 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 no. Stay, mm-hmm. you know, like and and it is true. The the violence against women has increased yeah. uh, tenfold in the last couple decades. Um, women are more likely to be naked and scantily clad on screen than they used to be, so that you actually see these more and more demeaning roles as mm-hmm. women do actually gain power elsewhere.
1: Yes. The um, so then t- tell me about because again, you were be, you had your own experience of going to acting school and, uh, and then again, going out in the in the marketplace. So so talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I was a white lady from Colorado, who was raised by a feminist mother to believe that this was like, basically solved. <laughs> that, yeah. Like I would just I could do whatever I wanted to do. And that my vagina would never be a problem like mm-hmm. that that was just normal and i i went to acting school with that feeling and you know watched Meryl Streep and the roles that she got to play and that was my dream to tell important stories that mattered mm-hmm. and um very got out of acting school and just as i don't have to tell you started auditioning for the most ridiculous you know be auditioning against 300 other amazing women to play naked corpse number 4 and <laughs> like a, a couple of years into that i was like this is not yeah. This is not what I came here to do. What's funny is, see,
1: I came into it a backwards way because I I started out trying to do those, you know, going to backstage. <laughs> and they'd get rid of me immediately. So <laughs> I went in a different way, which is, you know, what I, you know, I started working for a publicist and just sort of gave up the idea of acting. I said, well, maybe I'll be a writer or something. And then I ended up being working around all these filmmakers. Uh-huh. And that's how I, so I skipped. Yeah, you
2: skipped this purgatory. I skipped the line, but
1: coincidentally, when you were saying, oh, you're not this, you're not... I never had an agent. I Mm. never could get an agent. I was in films. (laughs) I was in... when I'm in the movie. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was in this movie, Goodfellas, that Lorraine Bracco took a liking to me, and she got me an agent. But I still couldn't because I was always told, no, you're too weird, too quirky. But but isn't... But,
2: like, there were so many interview conversations I had with women where they had, like, that conversation. Like, you were in movies. People were casting you in movies and the agents right. were like no, nobody would cast you in a movie and you're like no, no, no. <laughs> and there's a, there's a conversation that a filmmaker Catha Gentis had where, where she went into an executive at a TV network and was pitching her show about, she's, she's a middle-aged, an over 40 woman mm-hmm. and a, the show was about over 40 women and the studio executive was like, I love this, this would be great, this is exactly the kind of thing have your agent submit to me
1: mm-hmm.
2: and Keitha didn't have an agent and so, Katha went to the agencies and was like, "Hey, this studio executive wants to read it. Will you just send them the thing you You can collect your ten percent. You haven't done anything. I just need you to send this email and the And the response she got was, Well, um nobody would put a woman your age in a writer's room.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. yeah." <laughs> I think women hear a lot, you know, an interesting thing about women, I always think that people feel very comfortable saying almost the most horrible things. No,
2: no, they say the inside things outside. It's so, I mean, that, as a young actress and then as a young filmmaker, I just couldn't believe not only that this level of sexism existed, but that it was so fine that they would just say the things. Yeah, it's
1: it's kind of like having your older brother constantly be your (laughs) agent or your manager or something. Yeah, but you know, I for some reason again, you know, this is within everybody's path. There has to be a certain point where you you either get angry or, in my case. I really think it was just poverty. Like you yeah. just, I had no money, so I, I said, "Well, I'm funny. I'm just going to go do stand up." Yeah, you know, and I, I started making fifty dollars here and there, you know, because I, I, you know, can't get work, can't get an agent. You have to have to find something to do. Or did you ever reach that point, like you said, w- w- get angry or get? And then when you start making things on your own, it's like a magic door seems to totally. open and And, you yeah, know, oh, I'm really powerful. I don't need any of these people <laughs>
2: right well that I mean that's exactly what happened is I've, yeah. af- after a couple of years out as an actress on doing that, I was just like, I can't I've the acting is the only thing I've ever wanted to do and I cannot do this anymore um i'll I could write better roles for women. I'll just do that so I made my first feature film with a f- with a friend and that's that's when I really understood the sexism because people said things to us out loud in meetings just like, uh, well, girls, you know that you're going to have to get a male producer on board at some point just so that people will trust you with their money. Right. And sort of this endless refrain of nobody wants to see stories about women, mm-hmm. uh, you should think about making something else. So that was two things happened at that point. One was that I knew I had to be a filmmaker for the rest of my life and could keep making, and like inside the system, outside the system, it didn't matter, just make my stories and get them to audiences. And secondly, that I had to talk about what I was experiencing really loudly because this was in... 2013, 2014, and although there were women talking about it, it was still very siloed. I didn't feel like I was hearing women talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I discovered we were living in the matrix. (laughs) Like, nobody was talking about it. Which is how this whole thing happened, because I just started sort of mouthing off in Q&As after the screenings of that film, which we did make. And and then very quickly got put on sort of the global speaking circuit, talking about it, mainly because I didn't know enough to know that I was imperiling my career by Saying these things mm-hmm. in public, and but was quickly informed of that when when I finally stopped speaking to you know civilians and other filmmakers, all of whom were outraged, but had the opportunity to speak to an insider industry group and a, f- a female producer, a very successful indie film female producer who was one of my heroes at that point, mm-hmm. came up to me afterwards and she said, "I don't think it's a good idea to play the woman card." And uh, I've seen women's careers get destroyed for a lot less than you're saying.
1: Yeah, you know, I I personally find things like that, again, you just have to be immune to what anybody says. The the only person that matters is what you, is what you want to do and how you want to live your life, you know.
2: Totally. Well, and that was the moment that I got really mad. Then I was like, well, well, then, then then it doesn't matter. Then mm-hmm. like, then that means that I will never actually have the career I'm supposed to have anyway. I will never actually get to be the artist I can be within the system. So then I just have to be part of fixing it and, and continue talking and continuing making my stuff. And I do think that that ultimately is the Is We have to stop playing by their rules because their rules are rigged against us. Like That is what I discovered in writing this book. There is no woman who has ever had the career in the film industry that she would have had if she were a white man. No. And so, if that's true, and it is true, and if you don't believe me, read this book. Then you just have to make up your own rules, like you did, and like I've done, and just mm-hmm. find ways around, and just like stop committing to their value system.
1: Well, this, this is my theory, and you know, next week we're going to be uh, talking to an author named Christina Lane, who wrote about uh, wrote a book about an extremely successful producer named Joan Harrison. Mm-hmm. She was the muse, really, the and kind of the genius behind. Alfred Hitchcock, but nobody mm. knows who she is. And I my secondary theory is you can be incredibly successful if you're willing to have no credit <laughs> and be behind <laughs> someone. right. And that is a choice. Sure. And I've certainly made that choice myself sometimes. And it doesn't feel great, uh, you know, but, uh, when you're, you know, when you think, again, compared to someone else. But I have found if that is one way yeah. to do it, and you can look at some partnerships And, you know, in the industry of of some incredibly talented women that are really behind, you know, some uh, incredibly, you know, successful men, but you don't really hear so much about the woman. women. And And they're okay with that, you know.
2: Yeah. And I guess um, I guess I just couldn't like for myself personally, I just I don't think I could do that. But but that is definitely the other way.
1: Yeah. Do you think that movies played a part? In why we don't want women to succeed, because again, if you see these, you know, you see Leave it to Beaver and you see these images that they certainly didn't exist in any world I grew up in, you know, and, and, and yet you see these things. So then when you see a woman being you know, very ballsy and wanting things, it's, it's repellent to you because you can't yeah, understand why ab- she's...
2: Absolutely. And I, I think it even, it's actually worse than that because if you think about the fact that 95% of all of the films that you've ever seen out of U.S. mainstream cinema were directed by men mm-hmm. and overwhelmingly white men. Right. And 80 to 90% of all of the leading characters that you've ever seen in a movie were men. Overwhelmingly white men. And 55% of the time that you've seen a woman on screen, she was naked or scantily clad. Right. And then you think about the slew of studies showing that the films we watch do affect everything in real life from our purchasing decisions to our hobbies to our career choices to our relationship status to our identity to our views of other people to literally our brain chemistry. hmm And then you think again about the fact that white men are 30% of the population. What we're talking about is 30% of the population creating this visual web of language that we all live in that is almost complete. So I actually think we can't even see ourselves at this point except through white men's eyes.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Right. From what you've seen on on screen. So some of the some of the facts that that were really that are in your book are the phenomenon of women being seen, but not speaking on screen. (laughs) You're right. I've seen that a lot. You know, yeah, I think, again, men want women to be sort of beautiful statues, but not really not really speak a lot.
2: Right. So. Well, and, and there's that uh, stat from the Gina Davis Institute. So there's there's two men on screen for every one woman, which uh-huh. is true of leading characters, supporting characters, and also crowd scenes. So films are literally. A, like a warped reality where women are a minority population, which is so bizarre, but yes. then they also have a third last dialogue, so if they 're on screen, they are only there to be looked at but I must say, do you
1: agree that when you look at movies of the past, I do not see that like one of the things if i 'm seeing a movie from the 50s you you often see you see a wonderful mix of Men and women and and another thing by the way, they're not good looking right. actually in the movies of the fifties, it seemed to be predominantly they'd find like real people that looked all craggy, and, yeah, and they were the townspeople now everyone seems to be <laughs> right. uniformly
2: gorgeous, yeah,
1: look, yeah they look you know if if it's a restaurant scene, everyone yeah. in the background <laughs> looks sort of you know normal
2: i mean I, I I routinely watch British television shows in my life just to see uh women's foreheads move you know it's like such a <laughs> soothing thing to be like oh yeah you're just a human being
1: another what another uh fact i loved is that the average age for women winning an oscar is 36 how did you figure that was that just something that
2: uh, luckily somebody else had done um, that research so i didn't have to go through but uh, so it's very odd for women it's 36 for men it's 44
1: oh my god
2: so there is this, and, and also this links to the availability of roles for each gender in, right. in various decades of their life. So women, pre- the the predominant majority of roles available to women are when they're in their 20s. Right. And it precipitously drops off every decade after that. Men actually have very few roles available in their 20s. Mm-hmm. The 30s are their heyday, 40s pretty much keep pace, and then it kind of t- starts to trickle off. So the implications of that are pretty uh, pretty spirally in the sense that, okay, for one thing, we what we're saying is that we value women when they're young, beautiful, and don't really know anything, yes. right? Whereas yeah. men become valuable when they're older and they know things and they're humans and they probably have status in the world. Um, it also has a weird effect on the careers of actresses be- versus actors because... You know, there's the thing of it takes 10 years for an overnight success, right? Which right. is pretty true. Like, you know, you need to be working in the industry for yes. 10 years before you're going to hit it. Well, if, if a woman goes to acting school, graduates, as she's been told to do, becomes a trained actress, graduates when she's 21. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time she hits that 10-year mark, all the roles are gone. Right. Whereas a man can spend those 10 years sort of schmooping about becoming a person in the world, you know, and then hits hits his career stride right when the roles become available. So what you're actually, there's a reason that so many actresses who have become famous started as teenagers mm-hmm. because actually you need that decade in your teens. But then you think about what kind of culture that creates as, again, like, you have a m- way more vulnerable population of actresses who are very young, who have not lived real lives mm-hmm. outside of Hollywood, you know, at, at the, at arm, at arm's length with all these, you know, men who are much more seasoned and have a lot more power.
1: Right. The, uh, I mean, do you think that's something people should be taught
2: in acting school? A hundred. So I, 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 it's now my mission for the next year to get this book taught in every film school and acting school in the country, mm-hmm. because we do such a grave disservice to, women and people of color and everybody who isn't a white man by not being honest about this. Right. Because what I heard over and over again in the interviews is that every woman goes through that right. thing of like
1: revelation, you yeah. get
2: out and you, you're you like, well, I'm going to do this. And then you slowly, then you go through the period of like, Oh, I guess I'm not good enough. It must be my fault. Right. Oh wait, maybe something. And you lose 10 to 20 to 30 years of your career to that thing. Whereas if they just said, look, yeah, this is the situation. These are the things you're going to be up against. Um, and here are some tools and strategies and ideas for how to get around them, for how to deal with them. These are the options. Like, this is unfair, mm-hmm. but we have to fix it. And you, the, the young white men should also be taught this because they need to know what, the, what system they're upholding because they don't know either.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I received this heartbreaking email from a, a female director, like, within a week after the book came out. And she sent me this email saying, I have worked in this industry for 30 years and I've spent 30 years blaming myself for my lack of success. And this book is the first time anybody told me it might not be my fault. I <laughs> yeah. Like, like, what if just on day one, somebody had been like, hey, here's the situation. Like, don't waste any energy <laughs> blaming yourself for it. Like, just go forward and spend that energy making stuff.
1: Right. An- another fact that, uh, which again, I don't know, where this theory that, you know, boys – Eight, you know that it is like eighteen twenty-two, or what, that they're so yeah. important and, as as moviegoers, and that they aren't important. No, and, and I knew this when I was a kid that right. the people going to movies are are girls. Yeah. So and, and how did that? I mean, I how did that start? Do you have any? It's myth. It's a total. It's myth. It's a
2: total myth, right? So there's this four quadrant marketing. Theory That sort of rules the studios and has since right. at least the 80s where they say, OK, everybody who's under 22 or whatever is a teenager. Then you divide it into men and women. Everybody above 22 is men and women. Only Hollywood divide would, would put the dividing line of the population <laughs> at 22. Right? But anyway, that aside. But for some and then so you sort of figure out like which quadrants any given film is going to appeal to. And yeah. they've always claimed that the mother load was the teenage boys. And there's no data to back this up. Like, yes. today, if you look, films by and about women make more money dollar for dollar spent, which makes sense because women buy 52% of the movie tickets. And But I thought, so I knew that, but going into researching this book, I thought, okay, well, at some point, the teenage boy thing must have been true, right? Like, they just haven't updated their information, but that right. must have been tr- But then I was interviewing a studio executive, a former studio executive, who said, no, no, it wasn't true in the 80s. Mm. He said there was a data guy for Hollywood, who like, ran all the box office numbers and like, delivered mm-hmm. them to the studios. He was the data guy. And he said, that guy in the 80s ran a study to figure out who was the perfect audience member. Right. And at that time, he discovered that it was a 13-year-old girl. And so that guy, who they were all paying for the rest of their data, went to the studios and said, hey, uh, I, think, I think you've got the wrong end of the stick here. I think you should be making movies for teenage girls. And they went, oh, that doesn't sound right. That can't be true. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, no, I could see – I've
1: participated in maybe about five uh, – one television show that I did, at, you know, that had the market, you know, where you uh, – market research and the dials and everything, and about five films that I did where they did – people watched the movie and then they talked afterwards.
0: Focus grouping. Focus grouping. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And I never once saw – and that's not a lot. That's mis- say so five or six times. Mm-hmm. I never once saw a boy, I- eighteen to twenty two. Never. <laughs> yeah. The only obnoxious. It was usually like a guy in his thirties <laughs> or forties that was like the one obnoxious right. person. And guess what? There's a lot of like negative women too. Right. <laughs> like, of and, course. Like, but I never. I used to think. Where's this
2: eighteen cause I never saw young people participate in a focus group well, ever. And and the so the the thinking was of the four quad so their are like vague theory was that, okay, well, older men are gonna be working, right? So they're yeah. probably staying late at work. It's gonna be hard to get them to come out to a movie theater. The women are at home unloading the dishwasher or whatever they're doing. Right. Uh, young girls. We just won't talk about, but like the teenage boys like will have the money and the and like yeah. they're gonna come out on opening weekend, but but now that doesn't that logic doesn't even make sense on its face because where are the teenage no. boys they're playing video games at home, like it, they're not coming back to the theaters, and the studio executive said like. Now, the conversation is always like, well, how do we get the teenage boys back into the movie theaters? Like, we've got to figure out, like, what is the thing that's going to get them back? It's like, let them go. Right. They don't care about you anymore. <laughs> like, make movies for people who are coming. Mm.
1: Well, I think, again, it's just the studio executives want to, you know, they want to make movies that they want to see. Exactly. And they see themselves as young boys, 18 to 20. And therefore, that's why they do so many baseball movies. <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, my and- baseball movie seems to be like, all right.
2: Yeah. Well, I, enough
1: baseball movies
2: <laughs> my experience of Hollywood is that there are a lot of it attracts men who have not progressed past the age of 13 emotionally yes and so like I would agree I, <laughs> I, I think agree. that is right yeah. that's exactly it they're like those are the movies they want to see and it doesn't make sense yeah. to them that anything else could be true
1: it's so, it, it, because again in my experience growing up women always drove dating going to a movie of always
2: course. like have you spent any time in any family <laughs> like who is no, making these it decisions?
1: Was a girl always. I mean, I would say ninety-five percent of the time. Does your wife dominate what, what movie plan making?
0: To? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, this is resonating with me. <laughs> it's it's interesting to hear. I think like the whole thing about sort of like the regressed male in power in Hollywood. Like our CEO Kevin talks about that all the time. Just mm. it's a lot of like dudes who want to kind of relive the fantasies yeah. of adolescence yes. professionally. Yeah, yeah. and totally. I. I like, try to call myself out and make sure that that's not like a pathology I'm subscribing to, too. But I, I do see it a lot. It's, a lot of this is like very resonant.
2: Yeah. And um, I interviewed this woman, Jessica Hines, for the book, who's primarily a, a script coach um, and, and writing teacher. But she has studied a lot um, the neuroscience behind how we respond to stories or not. Right. Because part of the problem here is that everything that we have been told is great art Great and important art is also through the white male gaze. So, like, we've been told that war stories are inherently very important and universal. Yeah, But that stories about women at home with children are not, which is confusing because why is it... Like, how many people in the U.S. have actually gone to fight in a war? Mm -hmm. Thankfully, not that many. How many people in the U.S. have been stuck at home with children? But, like, so why is this... I don't Small know. I'm, and personal. I'm
1: fascinated by how many movies there are about World War One. Oh uh, my God.
2: Like and every. every like, what, all the wars. What kills me about every director interview is they're always like, well, I just. if This movie felt so important to make because it just felt like this story hadn't been told. And I'm like. Every time, I'm like, it's been told. We don't we are done. We don't need to tell it anymore. No, <laughs> there was
1: done. the year before there was another <laughs> right.
2: movie about world there was right. probably
1: again and like you said if you added them up. Did you think I didn't find anything in your book, but I often wondered, it, not so much anymore, but again, in order to win an Oscar, you usually had to be a prostitute. Like that was a right. women were prostitutes and when I was on TV, I got, I played a prostitute and it was like, oh, I guess I'm finally somebody. <laughs> you got your I, card. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah, been yeah. I finally asked to be a prostitute. Well,
2: and of course black women can only be nominated for an Oscar if they're playing a slave slaves. And yeah, yeah, it's like if right, you have to like fit again, you have to be like the right kind of woman within our brains to warrant awards, the
1: right kind of suffering. Yeah. Were there uh, another thing we talked about on the, um, in terms of reviewers, male, the ratio of male reviewers to female reviewers and I said that this year I, no- I said I've noticed how many every time a man makes a movie it's a masterpiece, and if a woman makes a movie it's sparkling entertainment.
2: Yeah, yeah right. I, or or just like forgettable, or it's like too person. That's that's a the thing they say a lot. It's like too small and personal, personal, right.
1: small and personal. But yeah. they
2: rarely they always say that a man's movie is a right. masterpiece. Always, right? And so so again, talking about this, the, uh, Jessica Hines theory of of how we're processing stories art is not objective, right? So we Mm -hmm. we can't say like this is actually better than this it's just whatever you experience and so the way we we resonate with stories is how much it actually is in resonance with our themes our our emotional themes from our lives so if a white man has who's an executive has had a very tumultuous relationship with his father let's say and he reads a script about a white man having a very tumultuous relationship with his father oh god the script could be kind of mediocre but he's going to be so moved by right. the experience of reading the script and be like, oh my God, this writer is speaking to me. Right, That he's going to be more likely to green light that. But let's say he gets a script about a pregnant woman. Let's say he's not married. Let's say he has no experience with pregnant women. Mm-hmm. He's going to read it. And even if it's the best written script ever, he's going to be like, this is so good. I just don't know who would want to watch it. <laughs> like, it feels like there's no audience for this movie, which is a thing women get told all of the time. Like, this right. is so good, but... What's the market? Who's going to want to see this? Mm -hmm. And even in,
1: although I'm thrilled they're doing a remake of First Wives Club, I can't believe they didn't remake it immediately. That movie was so great when it came out. And uh, so funny and so uplifting and people that you love to see on screen. And I don't know how long, how many years did it take? So they're finally going to do. But, you know, Jesus, they're in their 70 <laughs> Couldn't they have done it like the next year, for God's right. sakes? Although, God bless them. I'm glad to, I'm glad they're getting their remake. But
2: Well, and there's, um, an executive also told me that there's this term non-recurring phenomenon that's used with among studio executives to, de- to describe films that do really well financially but don't fit into their understanding of what should do well financially mm. so like bridesmaids right hit it out of the park and the studio executives looked at each other and said "Hmm, that's weird that must be a non-recurring phenomenon
1: mm. wow that's amazing.
2: Whereas if a, if if a movie about white men does well, they they instantly make like 10 different versions of it cuz they're like, "See, this did so well, but somehow right. they they can't make that mental leap."
1: The uh are you, are you seeing certain movies though that that really look like that they're are old fashioned? I mean, I'm beginning to really see a, a progression of films you know that that seem like that seem to have benefited from me too and then movies that you go well, it seems a Total. little
2: I mean the Oscars, the, half, I the guess, Oscars be this the... year I would say featured many of those films that that seem pretty old fashioned and I think it's why the Oscars are becoming more and more irrelevant because the rest of the country is like what are you like we don't care anymore yeah. why are but they but they're like they can't Do I you think, think it's, the oh, Oscars
0: two or the Academy will sometimes like choose one figurehead female to like represent. Oh, of course. Like, I feel like this year is Greta and obviously Little Women was really wonderful, but like there were so many wonderful films, but I feel like they like kind of checked their box and
2: and they're like, see, diversity solved. Yeah. But, but the crazy thing. So this is in the book. um, I was researching sort of all, I was trying to parse all the Oscar data because of course only five women have ever been nominated for best director and I was looking at best writer and all this stuff. And what I suddenly realized about the Best Director category was that so only three of them have been nominated in the last twenty five years, which I would say is like yeah, the modern and it's, modern uh, cinema.
1: Catherine Bigelow, I believe Lena Vert no, 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 well she, she was, was
2: she was the first. She, she before I'm, but like within the last twenty five years, got it. So it was uh, Sophia Coppola, mm-hmm. Catherine Bigelow, mm-hmm. and Greta Gerwig. Um, so then I was like, well, how did these women do it? Like, what do they have in common? And I was like, okay, well they're all white, straight, cis, able bodied, obviously. They're all very talented, and every single one of them is either the wife or the daughter Mm. of a man who had already been nominated for or won (laughs) an Oscar. Oh, my God, that's
1: interesting. Isn't
2: that horrifying? So, uh, Sofia Coppola, Francis Ford, it helps if he's a living icon. That's very (laughs) helpful. Um, uh, Catherine Bigelow, James Cameron, and Greta Gerwig, uh, Noah Baumbach. So, what I suddenly realized in that moment is, like, if if you are straight, white, cis, able-bodied, and talented, but also not directly related mm. to a man who has already won an Oscar, it has been literally impossible <laughs> for you to even be nominated in the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that has to do with this sort of inside-outside dynamic of Hollywood, where it's like, right. it's like the demented version of a high school lunch table. And like once you are inside, you are sort of safe and cool, and you, like and outside people are very... Dreary and con- like you get contaminated by outside people. So I feel like the way the part of this mm. is that like if you if you have to, you know, uh, nominate a woman if you have to hire a woman, it f- you at least want a woman who's inside mm. already, who you don't have to like risk contamination yeah. from the outside. And so I think you know, and I take nothing away from Greta Gerwig by saying this. She's so talented. I sobbed through Little Women. I loved it. I loved Ladybird, but. The reality is she's also like she's 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 sort of been defined as okay and right. They know she's not going to mouth off about it. And, like a lot of the articles about this whole thing this year in the Oscars it was, you know, Greta declines to com- Greta's team declines to comment. And that, you know, that's her decision and that's fine but like she's safe. Mm-hmm.
1: For that's them. yeah, that's interesting because again that's that's the role the w- woman always has to do. Ida Lupino you a know, Always downplayed her directing, and uh, she wore a dress when she drew. You know, she da- had downplayed yeah. everything, and that was her. Uh, that was her style. I think Nora Ephron kind of did the same thing. You right. downplay. Your that's power. another role yeah. that, that you know that 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 sort of women. Uh, on. Now, how would you feel? Because I'm in the Academy, and I've often thought, and I know it would be very controversial, but it's like, do you just say, well, then we need, then just do a best Oscar for a woman's film then? So, and just admit <sighs> that there's a bias. yeah, And then
2: have an award for women. So I'm, and, you know, I, I'm sort of of two minds about this, because on mm-hmm. the one hand, the subliminal messaging of that is kind of could be interpreted as, well, the women can't play. In the big leagues, they can't play in the NFL. So we're gonna like give them the side thing, even if the intention was to admit that there's a bias. If my my preference, if somebody put me in charge of the academy tomorrow, which so yes. far nobody has done, um, <laughs> I would I would do two things. I would a say okay, the the biggest problem is the slant in the the identity of the people who are voting in the academy. Like it's too old, too white, too male. And I and I know I'm going to
1: disagree with you. Okay. Here's my theory because I'm in the academy. Okay. Yeah. I do They bring in a lot of people. Yeah. And they don't vote. They don't vote. I think that's the problem. I run into a lot of people who do, who are, have been invited into the academy and they don't vote. And so what ends up happening is that the the old the old people that you mentioned. They're the ones that vote, so of course they vote for all their friends, and that's why it seems same. But I can't. Well, I can't can, can, well,
2: can speak to that, but I do know that even though they have been inviting in more diverse classes, that yes. it's still like seventy-seven percent male and I think eighty-two yeah. percent white. So It's very slanted. So what I would say is, okay, we're gonna we're gonna invite in way more people. Like we're gonna keep inviting in larger and larger classes until those numbers are equalized. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing you can do is you could. Um, go up to 10 nominations for Best Director and Mm -hmm. Best Writer because there's the reality that, like, they're always going to nominate Tarantino, they're always going to nominate Scorsese every time they come out with a movie. So those fill slots, and then, like, you're down to a couple, and then the... But I think if you expanded that list it might start to equalize it.
1: The, uh, were you aware, we did this on the Trailblazing Women show, it's still the same, it's 2020, we did started the show in 2013, uh, there are no uh, female-directed films on the AFI Top 100 list, which was started in
0: the 70s. <laughs> and there are like eight war films, just to echo what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so definitely. many war movies. Well, been,
2: uh, war movies are very important. Very important, yes. yes. They're very <laughs> award-worthy. But but this was something I heard a lot from uh, women I interviewed who had been to film school, which I have not. Mm-hmm. But they were saying you get so you get into film school, very exciting, and then you get sent a list of a hundred top films that you must watch before attending film school, a while, and a lot of them just use the AFI list. And yes. so they spend the summer before film school watching movie after movie, by and about white guys, and right. and they're like they're, whether or not they're consciously thinking about it, they're like slowly they're like. My perspective doesn't matter. Uh There's no path like... And so they describe by the end of film school being so demoralized because they've just been spent four years getting told that like this is the only kind of movie that matters.
1: Right. And so to give you an example, the mo- when I was doing the show, I suggested as a film that they take off the list My Fair Lady. I, that was just my own personal pick. So uh, I think it's two years ago, they did take off My Fair Lady and they replaced it with The Sixth Sense. <laughs> <laughs> the Sixth Sense. It, one of the <laughs> AFI's top 100 films. That's not to say it's not a good movie, it's a fun good movie, flick. but it is, you know, so to me, it's so significant because you are saying, as a society, and yes, there's a lot of politics behind who's picking the films, but aside from all of that, what they are saying to their own daughters is women do not make movies as good as men, which is ri- ridiculous. ridiculous. That's the most ridiculous. Part of it, and everybody knows that, and yet they can't keep their own, I don't know, their, their own right. sense of wanting their own movies out there.
2: Right. And also that, that films about women don't matter, because I don't know what the statistics are, but I would, I would guess that they are majority about men also and about white men. It's, it's sort of like, right, anybody's experience who isn't a white man is, also, is not award worthy. Like, there's, there's no greatness in stories. Except white men.
1: Well, yeah. Again, there's you know, a movie I'm in, Goodfellas is, is now on the AFI Top 100. You know, the it's it's you know, and then they make up an excuse. They say, I go, well, what about the piano? Oh, it's foreign born. But you know, what's on the list? Um, Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> you know, so women, women are all... Do you ever find that you're a little bit too smart by you know, they, it gets you into trouble because oh, you yeah. know, I love when somebody gives you. But Well, you can't put up uh, the piano because right. it's a foreign film. And you, and you go, but what about uh, Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia? Right, right. or what about British. maybe
2: putting Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash on there? I mean, like, yes. it's not like it's not there's not a shortage of it's not right. There's not a shortage of movies. It's just they have to, like, yeah. slightly expand their worldview.
1: I think it's an ongoing, um, it, it's an ongoing, di- you know, dilemma that w- that women are always are going to sound like they're complaining. I think that that just becomes such a terrible.
2: Well, and and certainly you hear this. I, <laughs> I had a man on Twitter the other day say it's very tiring to hear women complain all the time, <laughs> and I said not as tiring as it, as it is to have to complain all the time. <laughs> um, but I, but that that is why my editor and I chose the format of this book, which is vi- which is a compiling. Over a hundred stories, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can explain away the lack of success of any one woman a thousand different ways. And that this is what routinely happens. She's not talented enough. She's not working hard enough. Well, she has this weird kind of personality quirk. Well, she's too difficult. Well, she's not pretty enough. But but if you look at it across a gender and say... These are the these are the patterns of what everybody's experiencing and also tie that to the data. So it's not just them feeling this, but like those human experiences are adding up to these numbers. To say that across a gender is just to say that women are just less talented.
1: Well, that's I. I truly believe that men think women are less talented. Yeah, I. I mean that is a paradigm that it's just existed in yeah. painting, yeah. in music, and restaurants, and cooking. Absolutely, you know that is what we, was what we were. You know that's what we were. And that's where Jane Fonda says we live in a patriarchy. <laughs> yes, so do you have any? So we can end on some positive notes. Yeah. Uh, I know you traveled around, and I think that's great. So you made your own film. And you traveled around with that and what was that experience like?
2: Yeah, so so the book is actually very hopeful. It, it's sort of like Gloria Sinem's new book title says, The truth will set you free, but first it will really piss you off. Right. And I think that's kind of the experience of that I'm hearing people having of reading this book is like there's like it's so painful to look straight at what has been happening to us. Right. But then once you do, mm-hmm. then it sets you free. Um so one of my main points is there will always be a pipeline problem like even if we take in good faith that the powers that be do actually want to change this which i have a lot of skepticism about but let's say they do and they're starting these diversity programs and they're hiring one woman here and there mm-hmm. that you don't get from five percent to 51 percent in our lifetimes with that rate in, in with that narrow pipeline so my point there's the title the the word revolution is in the title for a reason which is that i think we ha- like full-blown insurrection is really our only option to mm-hmm. fix this and f- and finding every possible way around and i think the beauty of this moment that we're in is that because of the internet because of streaming services because of social media because of the lowered cost of production for the first time of any generation we have the option of finding ways of making our content fully outside of the system and also fully outside of the system distributing to the o- it to the audiences that demonstrably want it. Yes. So with my second feature film, that was the theory we undertook, and my first feature film, we actually got a traditional distribution deal, which was amazing and theatrical release. But we felt like we were putting this film that was that was not recognized as valuable by the system into the system, which mm. didn't make sense or result mm. in good outcomes. So the next time, we're like, forget it. Um, we know exactly who our audience is. We know where they live. And we know that they want to put on a cape, come to a movie theater, and watch a movie with us in costume. That's yeah. what we knew. The film's called Bite Me. It's a romantic comedy about a real-life vampire and the IRS agent who audits her. So it's, mm-hmm. like, more fun if you're wearing a cape <laughs> <laughs> in a room full of people wearing capes. So we, we rented an RV, and we... Sp- my husband myself and a film and a documentary filmmaker spent 3 months driving around the country we did 51 screenings in 40 cities in 90 days which was bananas and we drove 13001 miles in a giant loop around the country and we did exactly that we we put out the call to our fans and we said okay well where where are you where do you want us to come and we got 72 requests in the first 48 hours which was more than we could do but we just took the film to where the people were, and they loved it. People, We sold out screenings across the country. Mm-hmm. People came, drove 30 hours in costume to come to the screening closest to them. And it was so moving. Because what I also realized is that the middle of the country is so ignored by Hollywood. Right. And so... Like often I was the first filmmaker they'd ever met and they were so excited to get to be in conversation with us and not only watch our movie, but tell us what they thought and have a party with us after. Mm-hmm. And it was it, it, it reinvigorated me about the importance of storytelling and also how important it is to build different systems because the systems we have are just garbage right now.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you that, you know, that's a big personal decision having done a book tour and traveling around too. I, I think people can find enormous success if they left Los Angeles or New York. But again, it, it you know, that's a personal decision because sometimes people feel like, well, yes, I'm successful, but, it, you know, I want widespread Kind of acceptance, sure, but but also
2: I, I totally agree. But with I you. will say because we demonstrated our audience through those methods, and we had numbers, and we had testimonials, and we had we right. actually ended up getting six offers from tri- from mainstream sales companies and distribution companies that we had not been given before this tour. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's a there's a that in building your audience is building your power, and and then you can make the decision to to jump back into the mainstream or not.
1: Yes. The uh, and then do you have any uh, female role models that that are, who are out now that you want to that are really sort of leading the way and um, good for them
2: kind uh, of people in terms of filmmakers I would say like Dee Reese and Celine Skiama mm-hmm. and um, uh, Lulu Wang and uh, Melina Matsukas and um, Sort of the, it's it's sort of that generation of, of women coming up who I yeah. think haven't invested as much in the system and are sort of like just making great stuff
1: yeah I also think it's like looking for people that are you know unexpected uh, yeah. you know producers behind the scenes absolutely I've been surprised a couple of times I've reached out to producers and they've written back or, you know, you don't get a lot of their time, but they'll yeah. give you a sentence or two to keep keep on you know, uh, keep on fighting. Yeah. And uh, sometimes even there's some of these, some of the female uh, political commentators I've really been into, I've been like, I'm going to steal some of their yeah. sass, you know. I think it's, again, just having a very hard armor and and not being you know, taken down by the negativity of, we don't want to see that kind of movie. You just have to keep persevering.
2: Well, and, I, and again, having the information, because I think, yeah, like, to, I think that's true. to have the, if when then when somebody says to you, oh, well, right. nobody wants to see films about women, you can say, yes. okay, but <laughs> talk to me about the fact that women ha- purchased 52% of the movie tickets. And also, again, my main thing is, like, just... T- removing their power by walking away from their value system, right? By um, by finding ways around by ha- by having shows on YouTube and podcasts, and you know, I, I do. I see this revolution, this grassroots revolution that's happening already right now. It's happening at the fringes, right, with web series and micro-budget features and docu-series, but at a greater scale than ever before. Women and people of color and disabled folks and LGBT. Keep folks are mm-hmm. making their stuff in greater volume than ever before and getting them to audiences and right now it's in this layer that Hollywood just pretends doesn't exist but it does exist and the more that audiences get to taste that kind of fresh perspective the more they're going to want it and it feels to me like this magma bubble like we're the more we do it the more it sort of is going to create this upward pressure on the system.
0: You know I want to ask about that quickly sure. we've primarily been talking about film you know you mentioned Deary, Selene amazing female filmmakers i'm a huge tv watcher i know this is a film podcast but do you think there's any evidence that maybe the revolution's happening a little more quickly in television like i look at like Genji cohan like i love glow you look at orange is the new black shrill sure i was gonna say iliana was featured heavily on season two of shrill which features a plus size female character incredible show yeah most of my favorite shows are female driven i don't know if you can speak to that yeah exactly yeah so
2: um I have good news for you and bad news for you. So the, I'm ready. <laughs> the, the good news is it's a little bit better for women in television. The percentages are more like around 15% as opposed to 5%, okay. which is better, not close to 51%. Right. The, part of part of what feels um, kind of uh, confusing right now is that there's so much more content than there's ever been before. So there, are, we are seeing, it is true, a lot more of these shows but if you look at the percentages, the percentages have stayed the same. Mm. So, mm. like, even right. though it's exciting that you can find those shows and I can find those shows that are exciting. Yeah. the What is being watched by the vast majority of the country and now the the globe is about the same. Okay. Um so, but what? But what I do think is really positive is that it's giving us a taste, right? Shonda Rhimes kind of broke television open by sh- having these shows that looked as diverse as. And once you see that, then you're like, God, the rest of television is really white, and everybody had to kind of get on their game. Mm, right. So I do think that that is hopeful. That um, I was uh, I was giving a talk, and this sixty year old um, African American woman came up to me afterwards, and she said, "I just watched Queen Sugar." Mm and she said that is the first time i have ever seen myself or my family on screen wow and she was like in that moment i understood that that's what white dudes feel all the time when they watch things
1: <laughs> good
2: so like that so it's it's exciting that she had that experience for the first not exciting that it was the first time but that she got to have that experience but we have to be careful about being like, great, it's solved now. Television's right. taking care of it because it's, it's, it's still not.
0: Long way to
1: go. Long way to go. Yeah. At least it's something. Yeah.
2: Something. Something. Yeah. But
1: I, I'd like to see the AFI list change. Ch- maybe in my lifetime. they <laughs> will find one movie that's good Somewhere. enough. Uh, for me, it was uh, A League of Their Own. I, I don't understand why that's yeah. not in the AFI. I mean, there are
2: 100. so... maybe we was should, my pick
1: back in 2013. Maybe
2: we should do a sit-in until they change their list. <laughs> Well, again, there seems to be these pockets, like you get
1: this outrage and people talk about it and then it sort of goes away. And, you know, again, it's up to I think it's up to women to just keep the pressure on and again, be confident. Like you said, know your facts, read the books and just, you know, and be be there with examples of these um, of these other shows when you're pitching things.
2: And, and also to know your own value and and to refuse to allow them to assign you a lesser value. And I think because um, so many women, like basically every woman I interviewed, we would go through her whole career history and talk about various points where she'd been held back. But at, at the end, to a woman, she said some version of, of course, you know, it, it might just be my fault. Like, I may not be talented enough. Maybe it's just me. And like that shit, we got to like le- check at the door and even if we feel it, and we feel it because we live in a patriarchy and we've been told that that's right. true, um, we, then fake it till you make it. Like, just, you, you cannot let them tell you that your stories don't matter and your voice doesn't matter and you are wrong mm-hmm. because you are right and your stories do matter and audiences do want to hear them. And holding on to that confidence is really important, even if you have to fake it.
1: Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, on that note, here's the book, The Wrong Kind of Woman... Go out and get it. And uh, thank you so much for being on the
2: show. Thanks so much for, you're for having me. Another feature as
0: well, right? If yes, you want to talk about that quickly, just before we get out of here.
2: Sure. Um, it's called it's tentatively titled Hammond Castle, and it's about a seven month pregnant woman who gets locked overnight in a castle full of famous ghosts.
0: Okay, great. Ooh. <laughs> I um, love ghosts. We can follow you on Twitter to hear more of that, I'm assuming.
2: Yep, Naomi McDougal J or my website, Naomi Be great. nice. Be nice on yes. Twitter.
0: I don't get involved. <laughs> And, and we have amazing guests later this month. Oh as my Elena goodness! Mentioned. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, uh, next week uh, Christina Lane was going to talk about this incredible producer Joan Harrison, and then we're ending the month off with uh, Kathy Griffin, and that ought to be mind blowing. mind blowing. Yeah. Fasten your seatbelts! I can't wait. She's an amazing <laughs> girl, and I've known her for a long time. Talk about a powerful woman! Yeah. Alrighty, righty, everyone, as we end the show, as we always like to say, everyone's life is like a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's the end of our movie today. Thank you so much, Naomi. Thank you, Jeff. Thank have you. a nice, wonderful day. Goodbye, everyone. And we'll be in touch, too, about next week and a call in to talk about the TC, your memories of the TCM Film Festival. So we're going to set that up and let everybody know through my Twitter. Okay, have a great day, everyone. Bye
0: thanks for tuning into the film scene with Ileana Douglas airing exclusively on the Popcorn Talk Network we bring you this show for free because we're just as passionate and borderline obsessed with film as you are and it would mean a lot if you would please subscribe to our podcast and give us a 5 star rating on Apple Podcasts it takes 5 minutes to review the show but it helps other film junkies find the show and continue to spread a love of classic and contemporary film for guest inquiries or live bookings you can email me Jeff Graham at guests at afterbuzzTV.com that's G-U-E-S-T-S at A-F-T-E-R-B-U-Z-Z dot com. For more incredible film content, check us out online at The Popcorn Talk, and we'll see you after the credits.